Welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. Glad you could join me. I'm Scott Linden. My guest this week, uh, a name you'll recognize, you're, you're probably a big fan. This guy has written over 20 books on everything from grouse and quail hunting to conservation for kids. Tom Hugler joins me. It's been a long time since we talked, so we'll get caught up on everything that he's been up to from a uh, creative and literary standpoint to uh, hunting and uh, bird dog handling tips and a little bit of everything else in between, including kind of some of the highlights of his career so far in the woods and in the field. So stick around for Tom Hugler. We also will introduce a new old feature. Yes, after the new Upland Nation Index survey came out, it was clear to me that we ought to talk more about dog training and handling. So we are resurrecting our handle it segment that'll be coming up towards the end of the show and we'll find out what you're up to as well where you're going what you're doing some news from the social media pages here at the upland nation and of course wing shooting usa the tv show so it's all coming up made possible by sage and breaker gun care products pointer shotguns mid valley clays and shooting school true lock choke tubes and find birdhuntingspots.com So what you been up to? Well, I'm a little jealous. I'm not getting out quite as much. Lots of reasons for that. I'm not going to bore you with the details, but uh, I'm most uh, jealous of all of you who are still hunting on dry, snow-free ground. We're training hard. The pigeons don't like it. I don't think Flick does either. Um, You know, those ice balls in his pads, you've had that problem. Well, maybe not you and you and you, Rashawn, down there, but everybody else has. But we're getting out and uh, hunting the south-facing slopes uh, quite often, the west-facing slopes. They're still dry and and plenty of feed, lots of green up out there, especially on the chucker field. So uh, lots going on here. You are having a great time, and I am so jealous. Some congratulations are in order. Gregory Locklear, keep up the good work, my friend. You're doing a great job. You know what I mean. Michael Mapes at Second Chance Bird Dogs. Yeah, you're doing great work out there. Everybody take a look at Second Chance Bird Dogs at Facebook. It's it's probably the most motivating grassroots bird dog adoption program I've ever learned about, so check it out. And Jim Keller, you remember Jim from a couple weeks ago on the podcast. Uh, Jim just won another English Springer Spaniel National Trial, so uh, good on you, Jim, and thanks again for being a part of the Upland Nation podcast. We're working hard on uh, all sorts of things here. One of the things I got to get back to, I know lead is a challenge for me for a whole bunch of reasons, maybe for you too when you're shooting. Most of the time I don't need it, but I had an interesting, um, uh, well, uh, an interesting example about why you need to be flexible when you're when you're shooting, especially at distance. We were. Uh, it was a windy, cold, snowy day. We're coming down an ugly draw with about a foot of snow on the ground when I turn around and there's Flick in the bottom, the very bottom crease of that uh, draw, on point, pointing directly uphill, up, you know, that whole crease just pointing straight up that crease. 
I'm 150 yards away, but I start stumbling and sliding over there, trying to be careful because underneath all that snow is, you know, bowling ball-sized rocks. So the gun's open, um, you know, like I said, trying to get over there, trying to get over there, just counting the seconds, thinking any minute now in this kind of conditions, those birds, yeah, there they go. Luckily, they went straight down through the middle of that draw, right over Flick's head, but, you know, 25 yards above him and about 40 yards from me. Um, I had the ammo. I had the chokes. Did I have the distance? Yeah. Did I remember to put some lead? And, you know, if you shoot clays, you know, you've heard the term, uh, man, I rode that target too much, or I didn't ride that target enough. Well, I rode that target just enough. That bird dropped like a stone, not 10 yards from Flick. Heck, that's hardly even a retrieve. I didn't have to tell him to do it. He was pretty darn proud of himself, brought that thing back with a big pile of snow on the top of his nose. Where's the camera when you need it? Good boy, Flick. And remember, sometimes lead is a good thing. Speaking of that, our good friends at the Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School have some advice for you in that regard. You want to learn more about their shooting school, go to midvalleyclays.com. Of course, they got a pro shop. They got an incredible assortment of guns and can get just about anything you need, even if nobody else can. But today we're talking about shooting instruction. So if you're ever in Western Oregon or close enough to get there, Vandy and Dave and the crew there of NSCA uh, instructors can probably help you in one or more ways. I know they help me. They help my buddy Tom. They help people every day with their shooting techniques and strategies. Learn more about Mid-Valley Clays and Shooting School and their instructional capabilities at midvalleyclays.com. And as I've said before, another way to improve your shooting overnight is to put some great choke tubes in there. Yeah, choke tubes and the pattern they create will improve your shooting without any other changes. You know, until you pattern your own shotgun, you don't realize how important that is. And True Lock Chokes does know. Learn more at truelockchokes.com. Take a look at all of the information. They're a great resource if you're thinking about it. Just got another request on the Upland Nation Index at the bottom there for help with choke tubes, and that was the first thing I mentioned. Uh, you know, they all carry a lifetime warranty. If anything goes sideways on a True Lock Choke, just send it back, and they'll replace it at no charge. How many companies will still do that? TrueLockChokes.com <coughs> Well, <laughs> that's a propitious opening there. <laughs> it's been so long. In fact, it's it's been almost three years since I talked with Tom Hugler. Tom is a name. Uh, Tom Hugler is a name you recognize from a magazine article byline, uh, book cover. He's done it all. This guy was the pioneer in our world when it comes to educational informational videos. Tom Hugler joins me again on the Upland Nation podcast. Tom, great to hear your voice again. 
Well, thanks, Scott. Good to be back on with you. Has it really been three years? Uh, it's scary to think that, um, well, number one, it's, it's scary to think the uh, the year 2022 just kind of whizzed by. Where'd it go? You know, <laughs> but I yeah. don't know. Uh, but I'll tell you, you know, Einstein was right. Uh, the older we grow, the faster time goes. And I'm finding that to be true. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, we could talk all day about that and, and then complain about kids today, but we're not going to do either of those things. <laughs> I, <laughs> okay. I promise. But we are going to talk about the fun stuff. And let me just give people a little bit more background on you. You've written like 20 books on everything from grouse hunting and then quail hunting to conservation for kids and a whole bunch of fishing stuff too but uh then you then you went ahead and did something that i i really appreciate because it really did get me motivated in a lot of ways when i was much younger and learning a lot more now i know everything so it doesn't matter but (laughs) but back then i learned so much from your videos uh and and enjoyed the heck out of all of those and not only did i I do but so many other people did and you won so many awards with this stuff tell me tell me tell tell us all something about tom hugler that we might not know oh gosh oh i don't like talking about myself that much <laughs> but but let me uh, i gotta think about that one uh, scott uh what you don't know about tom hugler whoa um hmm well, I guess I'll tell you that uh, I'm 77 years old, and that has changed how I hunt, uh, where I hunt, and how often I hunt. Uh, it hasn't changed who I hunt with, including my dogs, but it, it has changed things. I've slowed down. You know, I used to, <laughs> I, they used to call me Death March Huggler because I'd take, <laughs> take guys out to, uh, Aspen clear cuts where there's all kinds of slash in the upper peninsula. And by that, I mean all the tops and drops, you know, yeah, all the stuff yeah. they leave on the floor of the forest. And, um, you know, we'd plow through that stuff. It was just called hunting. And, but so I had little by little, I had people <coughs> who would say, well, you know, I'm going to hunt with so-and-so today, <laughs> not with Tom. <laughs> and, uh, but I don't, I don't hunt like that anymore. And you know what, Scott, I found, that I move as many birds, not me, but my dogs, when I slow down. Dogs hunt the pace that you set. And if you want to see as many birds and don't want to wear yourself out, walk slower. Let the dog do the job. I can't agree more, and not because I'm looking for excuses, too, but it's absolutely true. The dog is a direct reflection, a mirror image of what we do, isn't he? He is. He really is. And uh, the older I grow, the more I learn that. And I actually, my dogs teach me more than I could ever teach them. Hey, what a great name. for! Oh, I did write that book. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember that. Yeah. yeah right. uh, by the way, available in paperback now uh, under a different title, but that's another story. This is, this is a story about Tom Hugler. Tom, you know, I just, I got to tell you, you're absolutely right in that regard. Um, and it's, I, I was reminded of it again, not, not four or five days ago, I was up on a hilltop in northern Nevada, and, uh, mm-hmm. and I was looking around thinking, uh, you know, it took me an hour to get up here, now I can load the gun and we can go hunting, uh, but the hour that it took to get up there, I, it was not the frantic death march climb that it usually was i took my time and i enjoyed the scenery and i realized part of that was because i was hunting by myself 
Yeah. You probably saw things that you wouldn't have seen had you charged up the Art Attack Hill. Uh-huh. Uh, it would have, you know, you have a different perspective when you slow down. You really do. And you see the nuances, the, the birds in the forest, the, the flow of, of uh, uh, habitat, how it changes from, you know, from segment to segment. It's, you look at the compromises between habitat. They don't always hold birds. But you look at them and you think of them. And the same thing with your dog. Um, you know, if your mind's not on balancing a checkbook, if it's on hunting, which it should be, then and you slow down, you will see things. You will appreciate it more. You really will. And you'll feel better at the end because you won't be so pooped out. You can't stay up till 9 o'clock and watch your favorite program. Well, you are a night owl. <laughs> <laughs> well, nine o'clock. That, that's oh. kind of my limit these days. Uh, uh, yeah, especially if you're getting up again the next morning for another hunt. Um, you got it. I got a friend who um, he carries. He he still waters his dog in a little collapsible plastic bowl. Okay. So to get at the bowl, he has to take his vest off, reach deep down into the pack part of it, and then find a some water and pour it in there and mm-hmm. i keep thinking man you're wasting time you, we could be climbing oh wait a minute what a great idea <laughs> every every 45 minutes this guy takes a moment and he looks around and admires the view and and lets his dog get a little water mm-hmm. and and it changes the the tempo of the hunt the rhythm of the hunt it does yeah those moments are when you replenish refresh and reallocate your time. And, uh, you know, I look at the watch as much as anybody, but when I'm hunting, it has an odd way of suspending time for me. And that's why I'm usually late. If I go out <laughs> and tell somebody I'll be back at five and they say it's six thirty, and the pork chops are raw. I mean, they're dry. <laughs> well, uh, sorry about that. <laughs> Some priorities are greater than others. Isn't that the truth? Well, you know, um, I, I got to talk about this because I, I'm not sure if I remember right or not, but uh, do you share a background in education as do you, as do I and our mutual friend, Steve Smith? Yes. Yep. Uh, I did. I, I was a high school English teacher yeah. for 14 years. Uh, I left that job finally in 1982. So for 40 years, I've been a full-time freelancer. But you know what? Once a teacher, always a teacher. I can't get that out of my system. I so agree. I have to watch it or my family says, stop lecturing, Dad. We're here yeah. to read the museum notes, not to hear you talk about it. <laughs> well, so. well, you know, and you know, and, and the good part of that is when you write something or you produce a video that is actually of value to the recipients. That's how I have to look at it. And it sounds like you're motivated by the same thing. Well, well, that's the whole purpose in doing it. Yeah, it is to share an experience, to share some research, to share a joke, but you're sharing stuff, and along the way, you're teaching. Whether you know it or not, you're, you're teaching people. It could be nuanced. It could be the little things that you mention and then walk past. You know, don't don't dwell on it. Mm-hmm. But people pick up on things, and those listening today are. I, I don't know your audience that well but i'm sure they're looking for tips they're looking for experiences they're they're looking for um things that they can take to the bank and make them a better hunter and a more enjoyable hunter yeah 
Yeah, you're exactly right. And that's the motivation for, for you and for me and for a lot of other folks in our world rather than, uh, and the reason I got into TV and I don't want to dwell on it, but the reason I got into TV was because I got tired of watching people stand in front of the camera and say, look at me, look at me, look at me. Yeah. Yeah. The old grip and grin photos. Yeah. Hold that fish higher. So yeah. we don't see your face. We <laughs> see the fish. <laughs> You know how that goes. Yeah, I do. So uh, you've had some challenges, uh, and but you've been out and you've been hunting. We're going to talk a little bit about all of that and a whole bunch more. I figure we'll talk, you know, first about some of the interesting hunts you've had uh, mm -hmm. this year. We'll talk about that, but then we'll talk about some of the stuff that that just pops to to the top of the list over your career of so many incredible hunts. So. Let's start with that. If you could, you narrow it down to f two or three. Um, I guess, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, bucket list hunts you've done. Well, yeah. Why don't we start with uh, uh, the most me memorable hunt? And that's that's really hard because there have been so many. Yeah. But the one hunt that I'll never repeat, and wish I could, was a hunt to Crimea and the Ukraine. Oh my. And, yeah, and that was uh, 1998. I went out there with several friends. We wanted to hunt Eurasian woodcock. Mm. Woodcock are my favorite bird. They always have been. But I had never seen a Eurasian woodcock, and I wanted to. And I learned through research that many of them, they're, they're migratory, just like the American woodcock. Sure. And many of them uh, filter through Ukraine and end up in the Crimea Peninsula, the southern bottom of Ukraine, where all that stuff's yeah, going on yeah. with Russia. And, and this is why I'll ne never be able to go back. I wouldn't want to go back because it wouldn't look the same. Oh, yeah. When I saw it, it was beautiful country. And uh, so, but the woodcock gathered on there, Scott, because then they fly across the Black Sea. Oh. And that's 100, 150 miles. And they do that to, you know, find food elsewhere and seek a warmer climate. And so they end up in northern Turkey, a lot of them. And I didn't, I've never been to Turkey, but I have been to the Crimea and we hunted there most successfully. I was accompanied by friends of mine, one of whom was Al Stewart. He's a just retired Michigan DNR wildlife biologist who's a hardcore hunter and um, he wanted to go. And so we, we included him and he and I had, uh, I think probably the most well, maybe not the hardest hunt physically, but mm -hmm. certainly it was a challenge. And a little backstory on this. When we when we got to Ukraine, we, we flew into Kiev, and then we took a train to Semperopol, which is the uh, the main um, city in, in Crimea. It's about a 600-mile train ride. Okay, we, we got down there, and we all had jet lag. We were, you know, travel-weary. And um, we got our guides, and there were a couple of fellows that were, looked. Eh, one was 35, maybe 40. The other was over 40. And those guys walked our legs off. Oh, yeah. And, and the terrain down there, it, it's, um, it's uh, high country for me. I, I live in Michigan where, you know, if we get a high hill here, we, we call it a mountain. Yeah. We tend to ski. Yeah. <laughs> But but over there, this this terrain was varying between twenty five hundred and three thousand feet, mm -hmm. 
And uh, I didn't get nosebleed or anything like that, but we weren't acclimated to that kind yeah. of altitude. And our guides pushed us. They kept kind of running ahead of us. And I thought, what is going on here? We can't keep up with you guys. You're almost sprinting through the woods. <laughs> so that night through translation, we asked, why why they hunt like this? <laughs> and uh, the translator said, well, they were they had never seen American hunters, they had never seen any hunter wearing orange, uh-huh. and and they were afraid that you guys might shoot them, like <laughs> the Italians tried to do. Oh, course! <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of them said, an Italian shot me, and I, that's why I was run out front. <laughs> I, don't, oh, I don't know if I trust you guys. Oh, God. Well, you know, it, by day two, they trusted us, and they loved the way we hunted, and they slowed their pace, and we got into birds lots of birds the hardest hunt of that whole trip was one that al stewart and i took on the last day most of the guys in our group had uh blisters boot blisters uh one guy uh popped a knee there was something wrong with his leg and he couldn't walk oh man another guy was a banker from minneapolis he was really too old for this kind of hunting so Al Stewart and I, uh, I was in my early 50s. He was in his early 40s. And the guides said, okay, we're going to go to a spot in here that um, we think you and Al can handle. It's a arduous hike in. It's a long way out. It's tough terrain. But we think Hugler and, and Al Stewart can handle that. So we went in, and to the best of my recollection, I think they said we walked 18 miles that day. <laughs> And the woodcock hunting was fabulous. We They took us into a knoll, inaccessible by roads, and that's where the woodcock had gathered. And uh, if I'm going to have to check my notes on this, Scott, but I think Al and I, we ended up shooting 18 woodcock. And uh, I can't remember how many we flushed, but that was just a trip of a lifetime. And it's something I'll never repeat, which is why it's probably my most memorable hunt. Well, you know, there's there's something to be said for both aspects of that. You did it. It was a peak experience. And knowing you'll probably never do it again probably adds 10% to that. At least 10%. It yeah. might even add more. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it's unmeasurable, the uh, enjoyment that that trip was. The people. Yeah. The food. Everything about it, and there was no downside to any of it. They, we hunted behind an Irish setter and an English setter. The English, the Irish was nine years old. The English had uh, born six litters, if I remember this right, and those dogs hunted as hard as their owners did. Mm. I couldn't believe the stamina of these dogs, and they never fed them anything. They just, <laughs> I don't know, it was crazy. They were in shape. They hunted hard. They were good hunting dogs, and uh, they certainly uh, earned my respect, my admiration. They were they were terrific, along with the, our guides. Oh, good the, people. You're lucky. What an incredible experience. I I almost had this the polar opposite of that in in the Kamchatka Peninsula one year, but the, so that's a story for another time on another subject. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said woodcock is your favorite bird whether it's eurasian or it's uh what do we call them over here um just american american okay yeah yeah that would make sense there's only two species in yeah the world. yeah and so the so the eurasians the, some of those are coming from iceland and england and passing through those countries as well uh but yes 
But what is it about that bird? You know, a lot of people would say, eh, too small, eh, too hard walk, whatever it is. What do you love so much about woodcock? Well, they're the only game bird that we hunt with pointing dogs. Yeah. They're the only game bird that's migratory, except for morning doves, which we sure. don't hunt with pointing dogs. Yep, yep. So there's something about woodcock that is always a mystery. Where was he last night? Where is he going today or tomorrow? And how far does he go? Where Where's he from? You know, they only lay four eggs, and the, typically the the hatchlings are either male or female. Yeah, that, that's an odd thing about woodcock. The other reason I love woodcock is they're they're a put together bird <laughs> designed by committee. Well, kind of, yeah. I, I mean the. Um, there's all kinds of legends about the woodcock. Um, the the, uh, the the there's a tribe of, of Indian. I think it's Eastern Indian, maybe Iroquois, that believed the woodcock was put together by Manitou from the leftover parts of other birds he created, <laughs> and that's why it's got this goofy bill that's four inches long if it's a big female, and. It's got this eyes bulging on top of his head. They're the only bird, I think, game bird at least, that can see three, almost 360 because of the position of their eyes. Oh, yeah. Their ears are down at the base of the bill, which uh, pr- provides excellent hearing. And they have to have hearing because they listen for earthworms. Mm-hmm. Could be two, three, four inches under the, the, uh, in the soil. And they can hear those things and pinpoint them. And that's what they live on. In fact, when woodcock are migrating, I'm told they have to eat their own weight in invertebrates, mainly earthworms, every 24 hours. That's a goal I've I've aspired to myself, but nobody else would appreciate it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, those are just some of the oddities about woodcock. The, The rural Britons used to believe in the summer when they seemed to disappear that they were flying to the moon and coming back in time, in time for hunting season. It's just crazy. There's an, another uh, legend about woodcock that the reason it has three dark bands across its forehead across its head mm-hmm. is because the Virgin Mary felt so sorry for this ugly little bird that she used her three fingers to bless it. I and love it, it. And it burned into the bird's feathers on the top of his head. I just love those kind of stories. It, it adds to the, they add to the mystique. You know, and, and I'm glad you're talking about this stuff because we don't talk, we, we get so darn practical so often that we forget about this stuff. And uh, and it's it's fascinating, yeah. And you're right though. They they behave almost as well as valley quail for a pointing dog. What you mean as far as the holding? Yes. Well, the valley quail I hunted in Nevada didn't hold for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to break but, up the covey first, Tom. <laughs> come well, with yeah, come with me you, sometime. You are right, yeah. and those cubbies can be huge. I oh, remember gosh. seeing cubbies of 60 birds or more when I hunted there near Fallon, Nevada, many years ago now. But they're a wonderful bird. You know, anything that flies and that a dog points is really fun to hunt, and it, and it doesn't matter what it is. I've hunted all the species of grouse and all the species of quail in North America, and I can't tell you there's one that I favor more than another. 
They're all individual, beautiful birds, challenging to hunt, tasty to eat, and just well, well worth going after. Absolutely. That's Tom Hugler, author, video producer, uh, magazine writer. I'm Scott Linden. This is the Upland Nation podcast. Tom, I, I, I hesitate to ask you this, but you have a much better memory than me. If I had to narrow it down to one or two, I don't think I could do it. But what has been the wackiest, craziest, off-the-rails bird hunt you've ever been on? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. I'll try to keep this one shorter. It's uh, <laughs> South Dakota, 1980. The first time I went out there, and I had a young setter, a field trial dog, my very first setter. She was about two or three years old. Her name was Brinka. And um, so it, she was a high-strung dog. As I said, she was field trial stock. And uh, so I put her on a plane in Flint, Michigan, and we were on a milk run up and down, up and down, all the way to Mitchell, South Dakota. Uh, yes. Well, the big stop was at O'Hare International in Chicago. And I went down to the hole to see about my dog because there was a long layover there. No dog. She didn't make it on the flight. Oh, man. And what the heck happened here, you know? And so I kind of panicked and there's nothing I could do. Well, I got back on the plane and we ended up in Mitchell, South Dakota, and I had no dog. And so I spent a sleepless night in the motel room waiting for the next day's flight to arrive. And thank gosh, it had my dog. Wow. So I'm, I'm back in business, right? But I'm, I'm a day behind the hunt when other friends were in, staying in Platte, South Dakota and shooting birds and I wasn't there. So I needed to hustle over there. Well, I rented a car. <laughs> I, I guess you could call it a car. <laughs> I think it was $18 a day and 18 cents a mile. But and anyway, I this car, it, it burned as much oil as it did gas. Oh, you wow. know, it was stopping oh. constantly. <laughs> and because of all of that and the craziness of this trip, I, uh, I ended up putting a brand new L.L. Bean shooting jacket on the roof and drove off. So somebody <laughs> got a new $80 Coda. <laughs> and I ended up in, in finally in uh, Platt. And so I took Brinka hunting. Well, she was so wound up. Several of us went down this strip of Sudan grass that the farmer had left uh, intact. You know, he didn't harvest it. And if you know anything about strip cover and pheasants, you know they're going to run to the other end. And especially if they're pushed by a dog that's gone berserk. And my dog was so pent up, she just raced to the end of that thing, flushed all the birds, it took me four hours to get her back. Oh, and wow. I knew where she was. Well, I knew where she was because I could see clouds of pheasants busting <laughs> loose out of out of the sorghum and out of the, the uh, my, uh, not Milo, but the uh, soybeans and everything else. And anyway, that, that hunt was bummed. So I, I had to put her back in a kennel. I mean, she was ruining the hunt. Yeah. And, uh, and the, you know, the, the hunt ended up okay. That eight of us shot 120 ringnecks. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. It was, well, it's it's you know five days times three, fifteen per hunter, times eight. I believe is 120. 
Math is not my strong point. English, English teacher, is. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but anyway, so that was the weirdest, craziest hunt that I can recall. Now, oh, there have been my. plenty of other nutty hunts, but this one was, you know, uh, this one was crazy. I, I can relate to three quarters of that. Uh, we never lost a dog, but we've lost television cameras, shotguns, tripods. Uh, yeah. uh, none of none of those things would are, are as life-changing or as aggravating as losing a dog. So I, I feel for you there, even a yeah. bad dog. And I'm not saying she was, but, uh, uh, well, I'm glad the, the story had a happy ending. And uh, uh, you could have, you, you probably realize this, it could have been worse. Oh, I could have, sure. I could have not shot any birds. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, the worst part, the best part about Brinka was the litters that she threw. Mm. I got two beautiful litters out of her and two wonderful dogs, one of whom was my all-time favorite, and that's Lady Macbeth. Yeah. Oh, my, she turned into a real champion. Love it. Well, good for you. I mean, uh, you've, you've been a fan of that breed for quite a while. Is there any reason that you particularly fall for those dogs yeah yeah there is you know it's it's the tail as much <laughs> as anything that that musketeer's hat that feathered plume when they're on point that's either straight up or straight out yeah and and when it's backlit backlit by the sun oh my gosh there's nothing more beautiful in canine in the canine world than a english setter on point backlighted by the sun I I, can't, I I have a hard time arguing with that. I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, so uh, take a moment, have a sip of coffee. Uh, that's Tom Hugler. I'm Scott Linden. This is the Upland Nation podcast. Tom will be back with us in just a moment. We'll also have that uh, Handlet dog training segment coming up. First, a word from sageandbreaker.com. Sage, S-A-G-E, and Breaker, B-R-A-K-E-R, you know, just like it sounds, just got the word from Fred Bohm over there. The Christmas gun cleaning combo is now on the market. This is a great, I, I, I want to say starter kit, but it's, a, it's an all-in-one kit for the shotgunners on your Christmas list from a shotgun gun mat to some CLP spray for cleaning, lubricating, and protecting firearms parts tray, a brush and pick tool roll, very handy firearm cleaning swabs and a gun cleaning cloth usually 407 bucks now 355 bucks learn about all of the new stuff coming down there's more coming very soon fred said it's just about ready get on the mailing list at sageandbreaker.com Tom Hugler, welcome back to the Upland Nation podcast. Uh, sure enjoying this and getting caught up. Uh, you know, um, there are so many things that I'd love to talk with you about. Have you, because, yeah, because I can share some of the, some of the same experiences, but you have so many more and so many more interesting ones. Have you ever had a challenging hunting buddy that um, maybe tested you in one way or another? 
<laughs> Can you limit oh, yeah. it down to a couple? <laughs> I, I don't hunt alone very often. Mm-hmm. I love to hunt alone, but I also enjoy hunting with others. Yeah. And there was one fellow who, well, uh, he couldn't shut his mouth. He kept talking to my dogs, which is a no-no. You don't talk yeah. to somebody else's dog. You're, you hunt quietly. That's how you get closer to birds. Now, I know you got a bell on the most uh, pointing breeds, and, you know, they'll make noise, but that doesn't seem to scare pheasants or quail. Uh, but but sometimes loud, you know, car doors slamming and people hollering at their dogs and stuff, that, that just drives them off, off uh, out of range. So uh, this fellow just wouldn't be quiet. And uh, so he would keep, he was like a cheerleader. Hey, good point there, buddy. You know, let's do that again. <laughs> and, or he'd be directing my dog. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hunt over here. You missed this spot. You know, you just, <laughs> you know what? I had a trainer once tell me, Scott, I asked him, I said, what's the most important tool a dog trainer, hunting dog trainer can have? I figured he'd say an e-collar. You know what he said? Duct tape. I love it. <laughs> I, I said duct tape. Yeah, he said, you tear off a piece about four by six inches. Uh, use your imagination, Tom. <laughs> and I did. It wasn't me that was blabbing. It was somebody else. And I wish I had, had duct tape that day. Yeah, yeah. So, so true. Uh, been there and done that. I, I find myself wanting to, to, to chime in too often, and I bite my tongue. But there are times when... Uh, when you just want to, you know, you do appreciate hunting by yourself, and that's one reason right there. On top yeah, of the fact it, that you can slow down a little bit, so. Uh, it, well, true, and you know when you, when you uh, hunt with someone else's dog, and you own dogs and train dogs and work with your own dog, it's hard to shut your mouth. You want to say things. And at the very least, say things that are complimentary. Not, you oh, your dog missed that. How, yeah. how come you didn't retrieve that bird all the way? You know, lay off the insults. And uh, and if you have to say anything, make sure it's something positive. Yeah, I, I, I wrote a piece once years ago, and I said, if your dog was so much better, we'd be hunting with him. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, you got it. So that that kind of shuts them up. Although if you have to shut up your hunting buddy, they probably ought not be a hunting buddy anymore. Yeah, that's part of etiquette yeah. in the field. And it's important that you follow etiquette in the field. And that probably is primarily the most important thing. You know how you deal with other dogs, including your own, though, too. Yeah. I I I am uh, yeah I wrote a, another piece uh, on stealth in the field of, of a year or so ago that r- really kind of echoes what you just said. There there are very few reasons we should have to say anything once we're in the field and hunting. Uh, there's the train tracks that might be over there on the side, or there's the freeway mm-hmm. on the other side, or there's some cliff or whatever but other than that you know can you think of any other you know good reasons to be yelling and screaming or even using your whistle once in a while i there there are just very few yeah i i don't use a whistle anymore Uh i uh the last dog i had trained it was trained with the the silent method Uh the silent command system and that's the one perfected by the smiths Mm -hmm. and uh Oh, you know what? I got to interrupt myself. I'm watching a dozen wild turkeys walk across my front yard. 
Ah, where's a I shotgun when you need woods. it? <laughs> I live back in the woods and, and we see wildlife all the time, but that's just grand. Anyway. Are they uh, are, are are they coming in to feed? Are you putting something out for them, Tom? No, no. Yeah. I don't need to. I, yeah. I live on 27 acres and there's lots of food out yeah. there. And yeah. uh, the, it, this place is in a sense a sanctuary. Yeah. It's, it's in a rural part of Michigan, and my, where my neighbors are the three C's, cows, corn, and combines. Yeah. And uh, there's not many people, and these birds just come in here, and deer, too. Yeah. Um, yeah. And none of them is, is a gobbler, though. Oh. Yes, there is. There's one following up. He's the gobbler. I'll get him next spring. There you go. I love it. <laughs> we'll let him go through the winter. Well, good for you. So what, mm -hmm. what we, oh, we were talking about being stealthy and the silent command method, which, uh, you know, by the way, there's something else in that I'll talk about next, but go ahead. Well, so, I was just going to say, uh, based on, you know, I'm picking up on something you said, the articles you've written, I, I write a column called Eastern Encounters, yeah, the pointing yeah. out journal. I've done it for 30 years. And I wrote a column one time, I titled it Rethinking Prattle and Pace. <laughs> <laughs> rethinking prattle and pace and it go, went into the same thing that you i assume went into and that we're talking about you know be quiet slow down shoot birds yeah yeah it's so true by the way i'm honored to be your western counterpart periodically in that magazine and, yeah i've uh, been reading your column western yeah, wings you yeah. you took over from uh, ben williams i recall yeah and it's been fun because i get to talk about the stuff i really love which is you know the stuff west of the mississippi or west of the rockies in large part but yeah yep. but but you know uh, ronnie smith in particular has become a good friend and and ronnie and and uh and Suzanne and Love, his wife, have, have really made a big deal the last few years about um, getting your dog calmed down before mm -hmm. you, you do virtually anything, from uh, training a new drill to uh, starting a hunt. And boy, oh boy, has that hit home with me. I have a wire hair, so of course it's crazy. Um, so I do everything <laughs> I can so that when we start, they are focused and just a little bit dialed down. Do you have to do that with your setters? You know, it's uh, a good question. I, I I never have done that. Well, I mean, I talk to them and pet them, and I don't turn them loose if they're going crazy running circles around me. Yeah. I'll get another dog. Yeah. But, um, but one thing I picked up on, it was from a trainer named Tim Fox, and he trained Reagan, my current dog, mm -hmm. my current setter. And uh, I went over to watch him and see how he did. And he uses a silent command system. And um, the first thing he does is he takes his dogs out for the day and then he puts them on a, on a chain. Yeah. Every, every dog is, is parked on a chain, can't run more than five feet, probably less than that. Yeah. And, um, and that calms them down. When he's out training another dog, uh, eventually the ones that yap and jump all over the place, they just settle down and get on their haunches, and that's when he takes that dog out for training. So there is something to be said for it, for sure. Yeah, in fact, um, what it does is it teach them, teaches them to a degree at least. You know, I'm I'm no expert on this, but that they have to they have to be calm. They can't win. You, you yeah. can never win an argument with a chain. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's true. That's true. 
Well, and uh, it just has a way of settling them down. Yeah, eventually absolutely. they're like a kid throwing a tantrum, and yeah. you know what? I'm not getting any mileage out of this. Mom's yeah. ignoring me, and I've been at it ten minutes. I think I'll just go to bed. Yeah. <laughs> um, switch gears. Let's talk a little bit about rough grouse because um, uh, that's that's a, a subject I don't talk about enough, uh, mm-hmm. and I wish I could. But you you do. Heck, you've written books on the topic. You've done a video on the topic. Um, if you were if you were talking to a bunch of people and they're out there right now listening to this who want to be better grouse hunters rough grouse hunters what you know let's start with you know some of the more fundamental stuff that they may not even think about that could improve their hunting well first you know grouse are the ultimate game bird they're the most challenging and if you hunt them without a dog you can i knew a guy from new york who shot 600 grouse over a lifetime of hunting them and he never owned a dog yeah so they can be hunted that way but my advice uh, your listeners are start with a good dog yeah if you're hunting any bird without a dog you're, you're missing a huge part of the drama in fact in my to my mind the most important drama after the bird itself and uh so uh, a dog that's well-trained <clears throat> will will know how to handle grouse. Grouse run these days, at least the ones east of the Mississippi do. Yeah. And, uh, you you know, you, you have to find a dog that will creep on grouse, relocate when he needs to, not bust the bird. And uh, the bird is easy to bust because they're on a hair trigger, the ones here anyway. Yeah. So, Scott, I once had a dog. It was a um, it was a Brittany, <clears throat> a beautiful little dog. He came out of a game farm, had had something like 5,000 birds shot over him when I bought him. And I, I bought him because I needed a trained dog, and he was affordable. I had lost Macbeth, my setter, way back in 1989, and I was going out throughout the country to hunt birds. So I needed a finished dog. So I bought this one. And this dog was so smart, he literally would he'd get on a scent and he'd run out in front and yeah. herd the bird back to me. Yeah. And I've only seen that a couple times in my lifetime. And he was one dog I owned that did that. So You know, that is uh we, we joke about it, especially hunting pheasants in, in corn. Uh, whether it's cut mm-hmm. or not and you, you know those do- the birds will drive the dog nuts just to you yeah. know stand right ahead of him like two north ends of a magnet they never get any closer than that um yeah. and every once in a while some guy <laughs> will brag about his dog knowing how to do that to head him off at the pass do mm-hmm. you think do you think he learned that on all those preserved birds you know, it's hard to say. I, I don't know if that's instincts yeah. taking over or yeah. if it's intelligence saying, I know what you need, Mr. Hunter. I, You own me, but I own you, and I'm going to help you get a bird, and this is how. I, I really can't answer that. Yeah. I, I just don't know. Yeah. <clears throat> you just said something that reminds me of a great song and, and some other aspects of uh, a uh, a lyric in a great song by Guy Clark. Well, Guy Clark is probably the most legendary Americana s- songwriter in the universe. And once he said, okay. he said, sometimes the song writes you. And, yeah. and that's what your dog is doing. He's, he's training you there, but he's figured it out. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's what happens there. Uh, you know, there's something else you can do with the dog to, 
help him hunt, especially running birds like pheasants and these days grouse. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, apply something called stop to race. Huh. I learned this from yeah, I learned this from Jim Marty, who's passed away now. He yeah. was a, a great trainer from uh, Baldwin, North Dakota, and uh, he, he he just trained all kinds of dogs. But what he'd do with a pheasant hunting dog was train it so that the dog would take off, get on a point, and instead of deciding he's going to run to the next point of when the bird is gone, if Marty would go up and train the dog to whoa and wouldn't release it until he touched his forehead. Yeah. Then yeah. then it's a new hunt. It's a new hunt all over again. Yeah. The, 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 dog, the dog goes out and finds the bird again. He would do that and do that and do that until he got to a point where the bird was pinched somewhere and would mm-hmm. have to go to the air. And then he was in position for the shot. Yeah. Instead of yeah. chasing dogs, he's managing do- his dogs. Yeah. And it's just a good technique. I still use it to this day. Well, I, I, I'm learning that one. I, I had a guest a few weeks ago uh, who I made a television show with, and I said, hey, I, I see your dog doing exactly what Tom just described that Jim taught. And she says, yeah, you know, some smart dogs will figure out. Well, I, I pointed because there was scent. The scent mm-hmm. walked away. So yeah. uh, game over. Let's go hunting again. Mm-hmm. And, and yep. so in, in her case, and she was a very um, hardcore German test judge, um, mm her dogs they're allowed to figure it out on their own it sounds like with jim you you're going to work together a little bit more closely but the same basic mm-hmm. idea the scent's gone it's not a hunt anymore let's do it you know let's go let's relocate well Ray, you know you're right and they do learn it and uh reagan my current setter he's 12 going on 13 and because i trained him stop to race at least i like to think i trained him <laughs> uh they always train us you know but uh he now does it just he does it as a matter of habit uh he gets on a bird and if the bird goes he'll look back at me but i don't have to go up and touch him i don't have to say okay i mean i often do just say okay yeah you know and off he'll go to pin, trying to pin the bird down again yep Yep. So some dogs do learn it, and but it's it's just repetition. You do it enough times, and you don't have to do it anymore. Well, speaking of doing it, what what is one of the big mistakes most of us, and I, I consider myself one of these kind of dilettante rough grouse hunters. I don't get to do it near enough, and I'm always probably walking in the wrong direction and looking for the wrong habitat. What What is the biggest mistake many of us make? I think it's how we approach a dog on point, Uh Scott. Uh, I had to learn this through experience. When you approach a dog from his blind side, Mm -hmm. where he can't really see you, or from behind, where he has no idea where you are other than the sound of your footsteps, uh, you you get that dog nervous. You and that that can cause a breaking of the point. It can cause all kinds of problems. You want to approach a dog from. Uh, an angle where the dog knows where you are at all yeah. times. Yeah. And coupled with that is you don't want to shoot a gun over a dog's head, mm-hmm. especially a young dog. Mm-hmm. I had a German shorter hair. In fact, he's still out in my kennel now that I almost ruined because yeah. I fired a, uh, at a woodcock over his head, over his point, And he, he just went crazy. It scared him so bad. 
Yeah. That he wouldn't point for a while. Yep. And I had to hand him over to a trainer named Dennis Sakowitz from the Upper Peninsula. And he trained that out of him. But wow. it took some doing. It took a few birds. It took a, a couple of months. Yeah. And it cost some money. So I think those two things in tandem are big mistakes that we make. No, I can't agree more. And I've seen that and I've learned that. Um, a friend of the podcast and friend of mine, uh, Bob Ferris, who trains poodle pointers primarily out here in the West, Mm -hmm. Uh, reminded me many times that once the dog hits a point it's not instinct anymore it should be an obedience drill and the the only way the dog understands that he needs to be obedient is if he knows there's that you're in the picture yeah so swing out wide and he sees you even if it's just out of the corner of his eye but he understands okay the boss is here i better be on my best behavior Yes, and then I all that. and then all that other that. stuff you talked about shooting over a dog and that sort of thing. Absolutely. What about when it comes to habitat? Uh, I'm a newcomer. I'm I'm in uh, Wisconsin or I'm at Grand Rapids, uh, Minnesota. What am I looking for out there? Well, you're looking for microhabitat. Uh-huh. If you, it's just like if you go into a cornfield that's still standing, where yeah. will the birds be? Probably at the end in one corner or the other yeah. by the time they flush. So uh, you're looking for the pieces of habitat. It's easy to walk into a whole 100-acre clear cut of aspen and think, well, where would they be? Where yeah. would they be? Well, you know what? If I walk in there, I'm looking for the changes in habitat. I'm looking for... Uh, it could be a thorn apple tree. It could be, um, you know, a seam of pines in that sea of, uh, of, of aspen. Mm-hmm. You look for the things that don't seem to fit in the habitat. A lot of times you'll find birds there, and yeah. especially along the edge where there's compromise between, you know, this cover and that cover. They yeah. like those edges. So I think that's a, an important thing to keep in mind. Do you, do you change strategies in one way or another uh, from the early season to the late season? Well, uh, you know, if I do, I suppose that I do it uh, out of habit. Yeah. I, I need to think about that one a little bit. I, I do change where I hunt. First okay. of all, I, yeah. I don't like hunting the early season. In Michigan, that means green hell. All the trees still have their leaves, you know, the deciduous ones at least. And it's so hard to shoot a bird through that, straining your shot through that foliage. So it's a lot more fun when the leaves come down and you can see a bird out there 30 yards, which is about the limit of range for for me. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, anyway, I, I do hunt differently. I don't know if I hunt slower, faster. I hunt the habitat. Yeah. And my dog will do what I do. If I'm, you know, walking real fast, he'll hunt fast. If I'm tiptoeing, he'll slow down. And that's all because uh, dogs should be trained to look for you. You Mm -hmm. shouldn't be looking for your dog. Mm -hmm. Your dog should know where you are at all times. And, um, they not not all of them do and those are the ones that are kind of renegades they go off on their own they hunt on their own they could give a hoot about you so the dogs that i have when i've had people train them i've always trained them to hunt close yeah i'd rather have that dog lacing my boots 
them over there hunting in the next township. What What, what is and, close to you, though? I mean, define that for a, a uh, rough grouse hunter. Well, close to me is depends on the habitat, okay. actually. Right. Uh, if it's real thick, if it's a thick alder bottom and I'm looking for woodcock, if that dog is 20 yards in front of me, it's too far. Mm-hmm. If he bumps a bird, I'll never see it. Yeah. So I want him stitching my shoes, you know. Yeah. I want yeah. him right there, like, he can be 10 feet, 20 feet. Yeah. Now, if we're out there on the prairie, I don't care if he goes a quarter mile. It's okay. I can see his point. And he has to find those birds in that mm-hmm. big sea of prairie grass. So it depends on the habitat more than anything. And and you, 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 we always argue this in NAVDA. We, we always, I shouldn't say, we always suggests that a good versatile hunting dog can adjust their race their range depending mm-hmm. on the habitat and so the same dog that's that's at 20 yards or 15 yards in your grouse woods there tom you're taking mm-hmm. that same dog over to uh, north dakota and hunting sharp tails with it mm-hmm. yep. yeah 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 it's that's right and and i've had I've had dogs that do that. My Reagan hunts like that. I had a dog named Sherlock that yeah. was an incredibly good dog. Yeah, well, yeah, and I he, remember reading about him quite a bit. Yeah, and he did the same thing. But I've also had dogs that don't know how to do that, yeah. don't care to learn how to do that, or maybe aren't smart enough to do that. I don't know. Yeah, can you think you can train that, or is that a uh, is that in inbred? No, you can train it. Yeah, and I'm I'm not a professional trainer, but I know how professional trainers think. Yeah, and the devices they use, you can train it with a check cord. Yeah, that's what Tim Fox does, mm-hmm. and then you can follow up with an e collar if necessary. Yeah, you never want to poke a dog unless he's done something wrong and yeah. he knows what he's done is wrong. Uh-huh. Then then you can give him an electrical poke. Yeah, to correct the behavior. But, uh, yeah, you, you can train that, Scott. I, I'm sure you can. Okay, reach into your hunting vest. Uh, you're out there. Um, well, let's not – no, reach into the back of your car. Um, mm-hmm. And what is what is Tom Hugler going to use for a shotgun, for a choke, and for uh, an ammo size? Well, what are what are we hunting? Okay. Uh, Different uh, for rough, stage grouse. Let's try rough grouse. Rough grouse, Okay. That's going to be uh, a 28-gauge, uh-huh. almost exclusively I hunt with a 28-gauge. And I'm not sure why. I guess it's more challenging. I guess it's an odd gauge that most yeah. people don't hunt. I know I pay more for shells. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but I just love I love that more. I, I, I just love it. And so I have two 28-gauges. One is a very fancy uh, 101, you know, Winchester 101 yeah. That's, yeah. With, that's actually pigeon-grade real nice gun it doesn't look nice now because i beat it up <laughs> but over the years but the one i favor now is a fitted gun and that's an aya number two made in spain and i was fitted so that gun fits me like a well-tailored suit mm-hmm. and that it helps me shoot better it yeah. also gives me confidence that i can shoot better because the gun fits yeah. So it's just like a guy who's standing up to give a lecture and his suit is two sizes too big and he's conscious about it, and he's, yeah. but he's not confident in giving the speech. He's focused on that instead. Yeah. So uh, that's that's the one thing. The other thing, okay, for uh, for grouse, you, you asked, okay, I would start with seven and a half mm-hmm. because 
early in the season, grouse are usually near or, you know, close to woodcock. And uh, I don't want to shred a woodcock with, uh-huh. you know, a fi- around the fives or sixes. Later in the season, when the woodcock are gone and the foliage is gone and the shots tend to be a little longer, then I'll, I'll go to uh, a one-ounce load of, of six shot, usually for, for rough grouse. So I do change, I don't change tactics so much as I change firepower. And that too depends on the habitat. Um, how do you choke your gun? Well, I'm always shooting a double barrel. So yeah. I've got, I've got uh, two chokes and I like IC, improved cylinder, because many of the shots are close, but I also like modified mm-hmm. in the second barrel. And sometimes it's like, think there's a it may, my gun may be bored to be improved modified yeah yeah, thing. yeah. I, I know the barrels are 29 inches long on both my guns and um they're choked of course i can change choke tubes on the 101 mm-hmm. but the a, the aya is was you know pre-bored to those specifications yeah yeah yeah, that's uh that seems to be kind of where i go i i probably change tubes once or twice a year and that's about it. Um, just don't see that as again. It's all about that confidence thing. When I'm when I'm fishing and I'm not catching anything, I tie on a mm-hmm. gold ribbed hair's ear and yeah, and, and then I just ca- I cast straighter. Yeah, you have to be fluid with your yeah. options. Yeah. So when I'm hunting uh, preserved pheasants, I'll use my my 28 gauge because you know the flushes tend to be closer. Mm-hmm. I go for headshots. And uh, you just have to look at that little painted head, not at the big body with the long tail. It's, you know, got your attention. Ah, Forget so that's that. what I'm doing wrong. <laughs> you got to paint through those birds, Scott. Oh, get, yeah. Get yeah. out front of that head. Yeah, I've read about just, that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've probably written about it, too, because you know what I'm talking about. You've I, hunted enough. I, I think I think there's a magazine uh, series in uh, shooting advice from a guy who still can't get it right. So. Well, there is. I'm sure there is. Yeah. Um, so the the thing, you know, let's talk about lead briefly. Yeah. I know we're probably running out of time. Yeah. Uh, some I've heard guys say through my whole life, "Well, you didn't lead that bird enough. Mm-hmm. You got to be out there the length of a school bus. That bird yeah. was going 80 miles an hour." No, no, no. Start behind the bird, paint through the bird, and when you reach the leading edge, the out the head pull your trigger and keep swinging. Yeah. You'll get that bird nine times out of 10. You just have to cancel out the rest of the bird, just the head. That's, and you'll get it. That's great advice. I've never thought about it quite that way. We, you know, we're learning constantly and I'm taking lessons and I, I mean, we, I am uh, about uh, using this move mount shoot method and Vandy Fiedler at Mid Valley Clays mm-hmm. has been really good about teaching yeah. me that. Um, and the, the, the key to that is, move don't stop moving um yes so it you know some people call it swing through uh you use the term paint they're all good and they all work if only all those trees weren't in the way <laughs> you have to ignore them that's where luck comes in i i'm, I'm, bur- I'm still working on that <laughs> i buried more shot in birch trees than i care yeah i care to recount well i i you did just forget that I did the Rough Grouse Society National Hunt one year, and and the trophy that's on the wall after that trip is a is an alder trunk. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it square, uh, square, hit it right in the beak. I've shot a limit of those two. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could talk all day, and we'll do it again sometime. Um, but let's leave with uh, probably the most important question. I save it for last for a guy like you because I know I'm going to have to make notes and memorize your answer. Tom Hugler, uh, known to everybody who's ever lifted a shotgun or chased behind a dog, what is the thing you love most about this whole game of bird hunting? It's easy for me to answer. I've written about it a number of times. Uh, it's the drama involved. There are three players in this drama. There's a dog, there's a bird, and there's a man or a woman. And they all fit together. You know, there's a, uh, with the pointing dog, there's a, uh, I'm trying to think of the word from English, um, uh, an opening, a prologue. Okay, there okay. we go. Yeah. The prologue is when the dog gets birdie. If it's a pointing birdie, of course, it's going to point. If it's a flushing dog, that tail's going to go nuts. Okay, the climax is the bird's flush. The anti-climax, if there is one, the epilogue, is when you fire your gun and either hit or miss the bird. doesn't matter. You saw the flush. You saw the dog work. You took a shot, and... If there's a second epilogue, it would be the retrieve. If mm-hmm. you hit the bird and the dog brings it back. But all of this is drama to me. And yeah. it's what makes bird hunting the fun sport it is. It's the reason I go out there. Spoken like a great writer. Good job. And uh, I did write it down. So, uh, okay. <laughs> okay. So don't sue me if I use that somewhere down the no, road. You're, you're allowed to use oh, it. <laughs> thank you very much. And thank you, Tom Hugler, for being such a great guest. I, I enjoy every time we see each other or talk to each other. And it's too bad we're so far away or we'd probably be spending way too much time driving down old tote roads looking for grouse and woodcock. You know, you're one of the few people that I haven't hunted with that I'd like to. Well, and I wish we could make that happen, Scott. I'm, I'm flattered, and, and there's always next season so stay in touch stay healthy um again thanks for being a part of the upland nation podcast that's tom hugler i'm scott linden you rest of you stick around tom i'm going to cut you loose enjoy the rest of your day and the rest of us we've got more to talk about and it's coming up right now on the upland nation podcast so uh, let's start with um just reminding you one more time we got that new segment Handle it is what I'm calling it. It's all about bird dog training and uh, and in the field stuff that we could do better. And that's all because you asked about it. But first, we're brought to you in part by Pointer Shotguns. They're available right now. Yeah, they're, they're, they're doing a better job of bringing in inventory and getting it down the pipeline to their retailers than anybody I know of. They're constantly getting new inventory. So if you need a Christmas gift for a newbie, Want to upgrade your own shooting situation? Go to pointershotguns.com, find a nearby retailer, take a look at the models, watch some of my videos and articles, uh, get ready for that new side-by-side. It's on the way. And um, put something really cool under the Christmas tree for him or her or you. Pointershotguns.com. (laughs) 
Well, you asked for it, and uh, that's why we do the Upland Nation Index survey. You tell me what you want to learn about, and I'm going to do my best to help you. That's why we had Tom on the show. That guy is a wealth of information. Go out and get his videos, buy one or two or 20 of his books. He would appreciate that, and you would too, because you will learn. Uh, but I'm going to do my own bit here when it comes to dog training tips, hacks, and suggestions, maybe just some observations so that everybody's a little bit more um, aware. And that's, uh, you know, kind of the premise for all this. Just think about these things. Watch your dog a little bit more closely, and maybe something good will come of it, including the fundamental premise. What do we call him? A bird dog. He lives, breathes, and if you're not careful, sometimes he eats birds. That's his reason for living. So you're in the field. All the training is done for the season. You shoot a bird, finally shoot a bird in my case. It falls down. Dog goes and gets it just like he's supposed to. He comes back. Remember, he's a bird dog. He comes back, and the first thing you do is take his reward and stuff it in your vest. Now, to me, that doesn't make a lot of sense. I understand if he is one, if he's like Flick, he likes to gnaw on it, soften it up a little before he gets, but unless it's too bad, why not let him hold that bird for a minute or so? Yeah, unless something bad is happening to that bird, why not let him just enjoy the smell? the taste of those feathers, and even the texture on his tongue. I mean, for a dog, isn't that what it's all about? Give him a little bit more positive reinforcement. Just a suggestion. Works for Flick. Worked for every one of my other dogs. Yeah, let him hold it. You want more of that kind of stuff? It's at findbirdhuntingspots.com. Just click on the tab that says your bird dog lots of tips from me and some of the folks i've learned from including people like tom hugler and with that thank you for listening sure appreciate all your feedback at the social platforms if you took the upland nation index survey yeah that stuff is what makes this podcast and the tv show and everything else i do possible because i know what you want to know and I'm going to do my best to convey it to you. If you leave a rating or a review, that'll add another listener to the podcast. And isn't that a good thing for all of us? And then thank you finally for um, all the support that our sponsors have given us over the year. Sage and Breaker Gun Care Products, Pointer Shotguns, Mid-Valley Clays, True Lock Chokes. Hey, thank you so much for making it a great 2022 I know between now and uh, when we talk next, uh, we have a big holiday. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Enjoy the holidays for what they really are about. Friends and family, including your dog. Be safe out there. I'm Scott Linden. Thanks for listening to the Upland Nation Podcast. Podcast.